Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an update on the devastating Category 4 Hurricane Ian that hit the west coast of Florida yesterday and is leaving a trail of destruction and flooding as it heads east across the peninsula to then revive its strength over the Atlantic, heading north to the Carolinas. Joining us is Claire Connolly-Knox, a professor and the Emergency Management and Homeland Security Program Director in the University of Central Florida's School of Public Administration. She teaches disaster response and recovery, environmental planning, and environmental policy and management courses. Her dissertation on the Florida Everglades ecosystem focused on the newly designated northern Everglades that encompass the lands and waters in the central Florida region. We'll discuss the need to upgrade building codes that were improved after Hurricane Andrew, but now after record storm surges and rainfall are proving to be inadequate as more powerful hurricanes caused by climate change are becoming the new normal. Then we'll look into today's first Pacific Island summit at the White House, spurred by inroads into the region made by China, and speak with Clea Pascal, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments in the United States, United Kingdom, the European Union, India and many others, and she is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. Then we'll look into an investment made by the CIA into a Dallas-based biotechnology company, Colossal Biosciences, whose founders have a mission to use advanced genetic sequencing for de-extinction that would bring back the woolly mammoth and the Tasmanian tiger. Joining us is Daniel Bogoslaw, an investigative reporter at The Intercept, covering American politics and corporate greed. He has written for The New Republic, The Nation, Sludge and The American Prospect, And we will discuss his new article at The Intercept, The CIA Just Invested in Woolly Mammoth Resurrection Technology. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Claire Connolly-Knox, who is a professor and the Emergency Management and Homeland Security Program Director at the University of Central Florida School of Public Administration. She teaches disaster response and recovery, environmental planning, and environmental policy and management courses. Her dissertation on the Florida Everglades ecosystem focused on the newly designated northern Everglades that encompass the lands and waters in the central Florida region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Claire Connolly-Knox. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And just tell us where you are now and where, uh, in relationship to this uh, really dangerous and devastating hurricane which unfortunately is my namesake, Ian. Yes, uh, it definitely has made an impact. Um, You're uh, calling me, I'm at home. I'm actually in the outer bands of Ian. It just um, left off of uh, uh, the East Coast, and it was supposed to, the eye was supposed to go over my home, but it shifted a little south at the very end, but it was a very long night. And at this point, what is it, about 2.6 million people uh, without electricity? Is that, it could be much worse. I'm, it changes by the minute. It, it does, um, but the crews are um, working as fast as they can considering the weather. So as soon as the weather gets usually below 35 miles an hour, then they can start um, working on the different lines. But it's going to be uh, probably at least a couple of days uh, for most of Central Florida to get their power back. I know that was what happened in Irma as well. And as the hurricane proceeds across Florida and then goes into the Atlantic Ocean, is it's expected to pick up steam, is it not? 
Correct. Uh, I think it's an estimated Category 1, if not maybe a Category 2, before it goes into the Carolinas just south of Wilmington as the latest projections. So having lived through a number of these, uh, Claire Connolly locks, um, this one seems to be one of the worst. I know after Andrew, there were a lot of retrofitting and new rules for construction, but it feels like this one may have sort of blown away those rules and there may be a requirement for much uh, stricter construction rules. Well, you're absolutely right. After Hurricane Andrew came a lot of substantial changes that happened both in the construction of our homes and having the roof tie downs as well as some other um, stronger building codes implemented. We also saw a lot of changes happening just in the profession of emergency management um, and a lot of policy changes. And so for the most part, those have been implemented um, and in varying degrees across the state of Florida. I know Hurricane Michael was a true test that the Michael that hit the panhandle a couple of years ago, a lot of those homes were completely devastated because they were grandfathered in and had not been retrofitted to those new higher building code standards. What we're seeing here so far is actually more in the impact of the storm surge and the flooding that is happening. And a lot of that is because of sea level rise, climate change. Ian was a very rapid intensifying storm and then it slowed down. So it dumped a lot of rain on these areas. And so some homes that were not designated flood zones are experiencing a lot of flooding. And so um, I have a feeling post-disaster, we're going to see an evaluation of those flood zones, as well as the timing of some of those evacuations. And what do we know about uh, the islands off uh, the west coast of Florida, Sanibel and Captiva, et cetera? The causeway has been um, at least impaired, has it not? As far as I know, the pictures we're seeing, yes, um, they have taken on substantial amount of flooding and building damage. Um, I know um, as many people are still watching TV and, and seeing what those damages are, and, and those assessments are going to come in um, as, as the storm leaves and, and waters retreat. You're going to have the emergency managers and their staff being able to go out and do windshield assessments for the initial assessment of damages. And those reports will then start coming in. But for the longest time, and apparently it still continues, there have been building high-rises uh, right on the oceanfront. That's the prime property, is it not? That's what people want. That's what they like. And some of the footage, from, particularly from yesterday, was literally watching the ocean come right through these tall buildings and go through the uh, parking garages and just uh, absolutely you wonder how, you know, that kind of damage when the wind is over 150 miles an hour, etc. I know that the the buildings are, are, are standing still, but surely there's a, you know, there, in time there'll be some damage assessment, won't there? I mean, it doesn't seem like that these buildings could take too many more of these hits like... Hurricane Ian. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, a couple of things you mentioned. One is that you saw that the water was going through the garages in the bottom, and that's part of the smart design, right? It, you're right that a lot of these buildings are built right upon the water. It's very desirable. It's higher property taxes for local governments, et cetera. Um, but the way they're designed is a little bit more resilient. And the fact that you have those first floor or two floors be allowed uh, to take on the water. And so that's how they're designed. It's actually how a lot of the construction standards were changed after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. You saw a lot of those homes and buildings needing to be retrofitted and raised to where um, they could take on that water. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're seeing that coming through the garages. Um, all, after the storm, yes, for insurance purposes um, and, and also for some of the building codes, yes, those buildings will be checked to make sure that there hasn't been any other structural um, hazards. And, and it this really after the event down in South Florida and Miami where you had the building collapse is what's also going to push 
some of those extra checks for the structural, if there's any structural damage. And those, uh, that building collapse was a result of, of seawater erosion of the, of the foundations, right? That was my understanding. So um, I, I haven't had a chance. I'm not sure if the final report has come out, but the initial assessments were showing that the saltwater intrusion that we see frequently happening with king high tides down in Miami and South Florida were resulting in the deterioration of some of that metal that was the foundation of the building. And so as it eroded and, and the swimming pool, I think the swimming pool near it was one of the first things to go. And then the building followed suit. So, um, again, it's it's leading to the awareness at the state and local government levels that we need to be checking these buildings, especially after these storms. Well, my understanding is that a lot of the buildings that have been flooded by this hurricane, a lot of the homes in particular, don't have flood insurance. That it's the percentage of uh, Floridians that have uh, flood insurance is well below 50%. That is correct. And and part of that, uh, it's, it's a multifaceted problem, unfortunately. Part of it is the nature of our flood zone maps across the United States. It's very political. So while it's scientifically based initially, it then goes to Washington, D.C., where it's finalized. And then that finalization process and politics come into play and it gets modified. So that's one component. The second component is with these in rapidly intensifying storms is that, and the frequency is increasing as per the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, we're seeing where areas that were designated 100-year flood zones are getting four or five storms within a 10-year process. So that needs to be redefined, right? Um, and then the third thing is that we've had a couple of insurance companies here in Florida um, declare bankruptcy or leave. Um, we saw this after the 04 hurricane season where every flood insurance company left. And that's where you got the state of Florida create an insurance policy uh, program and, and took on the responsibility for insuring those individuals. We're starting to see them come back, but we're, we've been hit. We've been hit a lot, right? So the 2017 season, 2018, you know, we've had a, a number of hits these past couple of years. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens after Ian. Uh, with those particular companies. Well, just based on the television coverage that I've watched, and um, and uh, it seems that even though the buildings stand, the ones right on the ocean, the cars in the garage float off and bounce and bash into each other, and some of the a lot of buildings and homes have been inundated. People have been trapped and have tried to get under the roof, etc. I don't know. We don't know what kind of casualty numbers there are. There's a great deal of concern that it'll be probably pretty high. So that's to say, uh, uh, Claire Connolly locks that uh, the buildings may stand, but there's a lot of damage to properties, homes and cars, etc. And so that's an insurance nightmare in itself. Absolutely. And that will all that's all taken into consideration when looking at um, federal reimbursement um, uh, for the local governments, but then also individual assistance coming in from FEMA. So when are we going to see uh, President Biden? And uh, there's certainly no, <laughs> no friendship between him and governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Are they going to be, I mean, obviously they've been in contact on the phone uh, fairly regularly, I understand, but are we going to see a photo up of them working together, as even though they're political uh, poles apart? Uh, that is to be seen. I honestly, I don't want to um, speculate. I know that during times of crisis and disaster, stranger things have happened in politics, um, but I think it, it'll remain to be seen as to if there'll be any photo ops in the future. And what do we know about the loss of life? Do we have any idea? I know there were, there were lots of concerns that people who stayed behind were told, first of all, not to stay behind, and two, that they could not be rescued because the, the uh, rescue services could not risk finding them. And apparently a lot of people were surprised. The storm surge in some places was up to 18 feet. So what do we know about the possibility of, uh, of the loss of human life so I think you were right when you said a little while ago that we, we're still going to wait and see 
um, as to what the numbers are going to be. Um, part of it is what you're just talking about. People are stuck in their homes. And so waiting for the waters to recede for first responders to be able to go and evacuate, rescue those individuals, um, you know, that will take time. And we know that just from past storms like Hurricane Katrina. Unfortunately, it's the individuals who stayed who had a medical um, situation that uh, the first responders weren't able to get to them fast enough. You know, that's something that we struggle with here in Florida. We have a lot of newcomers who are uh, frequenting our state. And so even though the messaging pretty much remains the same uh, to evacuate, mandatory evacuation, know your zones, et cetera, um, you're still having individuals who are not um, necessarily taking heed. Um, there's some really great research, if I can, if I can highlight, um, that my colleagues and I are working on that is using real-time data, uh, mainly using social media as well as cell phone um, data to be able to understand people's real human behavior when it comes to evacuations and the messaging behind them. And uh, we had a chance last year to update the behavioral components of the state of Florida's evacuation plan and to make it more realistic as to what we've seen people do. And, um, and so they're making changes based on that at each county. So it's, you know, hopefully that data-driven um, information can help the decision makers to be able to save lives and get people to get out in a timely manner. So, you know, I, I, we, we hope that um, the cost of life isn't what it, it we're, you know, we're hoping it's, it's low and not as bad as it could be. But Florida is, is a destination for a lot of retirees, right, who by definition would be elderly. So there must have been some plans for retirement homes and other people, you know, that, that, are, that need constant medical care. There must have been some evacuation underway. Do we know? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. So um, we saw this with Hurricane Irma, and then we've made um, the local governments, the we is the local governments have made some pretty substantial changes since then, um, specific to those special needs. So those individuals who are either needing extra medical assistance or needing uh, transportation assistance, as you mentioned, a lot of retirees. And so what we're seeing um, is a very strategic effort to make sure that shelters are open, but not just regular shelters, but pet-friendly shelters and special needs shelters, but then also transportation. So during Hurricane Irma in 2017, here in Florida, Central Florida especially, we saw some issues with there were special needs shelters opened, but people were having trouble accessing them. And so there have been extra partnerships created with different transportation agencies throughout Florida to assist in that lesson learned. And, you know, the pet-friendly shelters that came again after the 04 hurricane seasons when Charlie, which is very similar to um, Ian, except a much smaller storm, pet-friendly shelters became a new policy. And so now we're seeing that being implemented. So just in the last couple of minutes, Claire Connolly-Knox, let's talk a little bit about your work with the Florida Everglades ecosystems. Obviously, salt water is not good for plants and particularly inland ecosystems. And how much ecological damage is being done by this this flooding? I mean, obviously, you know, when you have floods, all kinds of chemicals and gasoline and other things get mixed into the water. It's it's not a desirable situation. No, it's not. And and as you mentioned, the Everglades ecosystem is a freshwater system until it gets into Florida Bay and it starts getting brackish, which is a mix of the salt and freshwater, as well as along the coast. And so when you have that inundation of the, the pushing of the saltwater into this um, into inland, into this freshwater ecosystem, it stresses the plants as well as the um, different species that are in that ecosystem. With a storm like this, ideally, the waters retreat, and so it's not a long term that causes too much stress. But what we're seeing already down in uh, Florida Bay and down in southwest Florida is as sea levels have been rising, we've seen more saltwater intrusion into that lower part of the Everglades ecosystem. You're seeing mangrove trees and a couple of other species actually start to migrate northern. And so you're seeing this interesting uh, transition happening in parts of the Everglades ecosystem. One thing that I was paying attention to, and as far as I could tell, um, so far so good, 
you know, they've been working on the dike, the Hoover Dike around Lake Okeechobee. And with the storm pushing so much water and storm surge into up the Caloosahatchee River, which is one of the main rivers coming off of the Lake Okeechobee, I was concerned that that was going to end up raising the levels of the lake to unsafe levels um, and potentially breaching the the Hoover Dyke. Um, so as far as I hear, that, that hasn't happened, which is really great for all the work that they've been putting into strengthening that dike. Well, Claire Connolly Knox, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you for calling. And again, I've been speaking with Claire Connolly Knox, who's a professor and the Emergency Management and Homeland Security Program Director at the University of Central Florida's School of Public Administration. She teaches disaster response and recovery, environmental planning, and environmental policy and management courses. And her dissertation on the Florida Everglades ecosystem focused on the newly designated northern Everglades that encompass the lands and waters in the Central Florida region. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into today's first Pacific Island Summit at the White House, spurred by inroads into the region made by China. I hear a sound, it's going through my brain. I hear talk of people, I feel the falling rain. See a man crying Cause the whole world Has let him down Kids are laughing At funny faces Of a clown Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India and many others. And she is the author of Global Warring, how environmental, economic, and political crises will redraw the world map. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Pascal. A great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Cleo. And the White House is hosting the leaders of about a dozen Pacific Island countries. And of course, it's coinciding with the UN General Assembly. So they happen to have been in New York, and tonight, uh, Thursday night, there'll be a state dinner at the White House. It does feel as if the U.S. is sort of playing catch-up. There's a great deal of concern that Chinese influence, and particularly in these Pacific Islands, is increasing, and somehow the U.S. and, uh, by extension, Australia drop the ball. So let's start with that premise. Did the U.S. and Australia drop the ball, particularly in terms of countries like the Solomon Islands? Yes, yeah, so that's a, a very good pricey. Um, so I'd say the U.S. passed the ball to Australia and then Australia and uh, New Zealand dropped it. Can't forget the role of New Zealand in this. Um, and it was uh, essentially started after the end of the Cold War when there was the end of history feeling, um, you know, why do we need to pay attention to these islands anymore? The conflict is over, that sort of thing. And within the Five Eyes context, uh, Australia and New Zealand were designated pretty overtly to um, take over the strategic oversight of at least the Southern Pacific Islands. So Melanesia in the case of Australia and Polynesia in the case of New Zealand. And U.S. policy is not Australian policy or New Zealand policy. And they had their, their own priorities and their own goals. Very good allies, obviously, but there was perhaps not a comprehensive understanding of what was needed by Pacific Island partners and narrow economic interests uh, took hold both within Australia and within New Zealand. And uh, the people of the Pacific didn't feel like uh, those relationships were uh, healthy. In many cases, there are post-colonial uh, feelings left over. There was a lot of sense of arrogance on the part of Australia and New Zealand's operations in the region. And, and fundamentally, there wasn't the sort of development that 
was felt necessary for the leaders of the region to be able to provide economic growth and health and uh, education that they wanted for their people. And in that gap, uh, China is very good at identifying that gap, as we've seen in Africa and elsewhere, um, and, and China came right in. Well, Australia, of course, is one of the worst in countries in the world in terms of global warming, the global warming footprint, in terms of uh, particularly the fact that they produce so much coal, which is then burned mostly in China, and is a huge driver of global warming, which in turn causes the oceans to rise. And the one thing that all of these Pacific Island countries have in common, surely, is that they're going under the ocean. So climate change is a frequently stated number one priority and existential threat by uh, the Pacific Islands. Some of them are are more low-lying than others. Uh, Some have an average height of about six feet above sea level, the atoll countries in particular. And uh, and this was definitely acknowledged at the meetings um, here, here in Washington. The U.S. has now released its uh, Pacific Partnership Strategy and Climate Change, at least the words climate change, take front and center. So it's something that uh, the, the Pacific Islanders are have been saying for a very long time and is finally at least being resonated in the, in the documents if perhaps not uh, yet uh, in the reality in terms of how, at this point, definitely adaptation, if not resilience, is going to have to be incorporated into their development. So you've mentioned uh, the failings of Australia and New Zealand. Of course, mostly the Australian governments of late have been conservative. They call them liberal, but uh, the Liberal Party, but they're conservative. The last uh, prime minister they had uh, was actually put in there by Rupert Murdoch, who has always been a kind of kingmaker in Australia. He he puts a, puts somebody in there, and if he doesn't like them, he gets them out because he controls you know about two-thirds of the press in Australia. So the last uh, guy, Scott Morrison, was a bit of a disaster from my understanding. I don't understand how, they, in terms of the Solomons, and of course the Solomons' capital on Guadalcanal ought to be a, a real you know iconic kind of reference to American military history, particularly in the key battle in World War II. But the idea that there were uprisings and then the Australian uh, military came in to calm things down. People were angry with the Prime Minister Sogavare, is that his, how you pronounce his name? And the mob were angry at him. They were burning Chinese businesses and uh, the Australians protected this guy who then turned around and made a secret deal with the Chinese. So that seems like pretty inept geopolitics on the part of the Australians. What, what happened there? I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps giving a rather facile description, but... Oh, no, it's, 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 it's accurate. And uh, what happened was the Australians got played. Um, the, the question is, you know, how, how did they let themselves get played? Um, there seems to be a policy within Canberra of uh, only dealing with the government in power. Um, so their engagement with the Solomons has been all roads go through Sogavari, through Prime Minister Sogavari. They haven't even uh, now when Minister uh, you know, Wong goes to the region, she doesn't meet with the leaders of the opposition. And remember, these aren't presidential systems. These are parliamentary systems, which means that the that Prime Minister Sogavari could have a vote of no confidence and the parliament can decide to to change the leader. Um, And so by not meeting with um, the opposition, only meeting with Sogavari, you're sending a message to the opposition that uh, they're not important and you're reinforcing Sogavari's prestige among parliamentarians who might be willing to waver. So this policy of only dealing with the government in in power has deliberately or not, really restricted Australia's uh, ability to work with partners who are actually much more like-minded. And this is, and Australia is the only country I know, major country I know that does this. When the Americans went in to, when Kurt Campbell went to go visit uh, Solomons, they met with the opposition. The Indians meet with the opposition. The Japanese, to a certain degree, do as well. So it's it, it, it's um, a, a kind of self-handcuffing of of engagement that really narrows your options, Australia's options. And the U.S. Is, has been very strongly deferring still to Australia and New Zealand leadership on this 
Um, Kurt Campbell recently said he talks to Australia and New Zealand every day. And this newly re released Pacific Partnership Strategy over and over talks about working through the taking guidance and working through the Pacific Island Forum, which you know, has Pacific Island members, but basically the policies are being led out of Canberra and Wellington. So if the U.S. is relying on the guidance from a country that itself has a flawed engagement policy, it's not surprising that you end up with situations like this where um, Prime Minister Sogavari recently actually changed the constitution to delay elections so that he couldn't be voted out. And that's, that is who the Australians are dealing with and, and by proxy, by de facto supporting, because they won't talk to the opposition or work with anybody else. And the, and the majority of the people don't like this guy because he's obviously an incredible crook who's ta obviously been bribed by the Chinese. But it's kind of brazen. I mean, uh, one of the concerns in that part of the world is illegal fishing, which is largely done by the Chinese, along with illegal logging as well. They plunder uh, New Guinea, for example. The U.S. Coast Guard was doing a really good job in preventing a lot of this illegal fishing that's important to these islands. But Sogavari recently refused to allow U.S. Coast Guard ships to enter ports and get refueled. So yes. what yes. kind of deal is that? I mean, yeah. and in fact, the, the headquarters for that for that facility is in Honiara, is in the capital of Solomons. And it, it's more than just that. He's actually blocked. He originally, after that, blocked all foreign naval vessels from Solomon's waters. He's now allowed Australian and New Zealand ones in because he's very good at giving just a little bit so that he doesn't cross too many red lines that would then want the Australians, for example, to reconsider their policy. So by letting the Australians in, but not letting the Americans in, it makes it seem like there's still hope for the Western Alliance for dealing with Sogavari and the Australians, you know, get to feel more important. He's, he's very good at psychology and at playing geopolitics. But, you know, uh, about two weeks ago, there was a by-election and his very well-funded candidate, funded in part through Chinese money, lost to somebody who is less funded, but was much more clear about his concerns about Chinese influence in the country. So if the people of the Solomons are allowed a free and fair election, they will get rid of this guy. But he's that, which is why he's abrogated democracy and delayed the elections. But having him at the White House is only going to help him, isn't it? I mean, is privately Biden telling the guy to behave himself or or is he just going to use this event at the White House and the state dinner to burnish his credentials? Yeah, I mean, he'll. that's correct. You know, what should what should probably I, I would argue happen is uh, a lot of that money, that corrupt Chinese money that goes to him and goes to the MPs that support him get laundered through Australia and New Zealand. So if you want to deal with this, you just start opening up investigations into disproportionate assets and you make it clear that if you're found guilty of corruption, you will no longer get a visa to Australia or New Zealand. And because of the, the way the flight paths go, there are very few flights in and out of the country except via Australia and New Zealand. That would be a serious consideration for some of the members of parliament who are currently supporting Sogavari. So you don't, it doesn't, doesn't have to be expensive to counter Chinese corruption. You just have to do what you should be doing anyways, which is adhering to accountability, transparency, and rule of law. So do you think that anything, uh, is this guy's getting pulled over by Biden? Or, I mean, you made it clear that this situation shouldn't be happening. Um, it's not as if... This is not an anti-Chinese situation so much as an anti-Chinese corruption situation. That's how they do business because they're not a democracy, right? They don't. The, Xi Jinping is not answerable to anybody. Yes, I, and I would argue that's how it should be viewed. What I, you know, what I've heard is that it's, you know, there are these words that make people go a bit apoplectic, like a Chinese base. You know, so what I've heard is that Prime Minister Gavari has been warned. You know, if you have a Chinese base, you know, we will shut you down. But as you know, of course, the Chinese can exert uh, political and military influence without having what looks like a U.S. style base. Um, they have these police stations already all over the world in other countries. You know, they have their intelligence operations. They have a lot of dual use facilities. They have 
you know, cargo containers that can sh launch missiles and stuff. So they'll stay below that radar. So that threat doesn't really doesn't really mean anything to somebody like Sogavari. Basically, he can say, don't worry, there won't be a base. And he'll be right. There won't be a U.S. style military base. But at the same time, he's bringing in Chinese drones and police vehicles and police trainers and getting ready to try to trigger a civil war in his own country and then enact that deal that you mentioned, that Solomon Islands China uh, security deal, which is basically a Sogavari China security deal, in order to put down his own people and delay the elections for as long as he possibly can. Well, it's pretty brazen, and and uh, you know, I know that this summit meeting today at the White House is meant to play catch up, and one wonders whether how much you know they're going to get ahead of this guy. And at least the U.S., as you point out, at least they talk to the opposition, which the Australians, you know, for some blockheaded reason, don't do. But meanwhile, can they really address some of these issues that uh, that would be very popular with the people, like deal with illegal? fishing. I mean, when you mentioned the Chinese military assets that are disguised in civilian ships, etc., the entire, what, many, many thousands of fishing vessels that the Chinese have all around the world, in particular in the Pacific, they're also coordinated by the People's Liberation Navy, are they not? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we, and we saw there was an interesting case of that when the Tonga volcano kicked off. There was a Chinese fishing ship that was uh, quickly re-flagged re basically as a, as a state, Chinese state ship to be the first to deliver aid to Tonga. So it was a question, it was sort of an unusual case of gray zone HADR where, you know, they, they but it showed how much reach they, they have into those fishing vessels. And, and setting up these fish processing facilities, for example, in the region off the coast of of Australia and some of the neighboring countries is an excuse to to be able to swarm with the with the fishing fleet and the fishing fleet of course also has the capacity to do all sorts of maritime domain awareness and and other things that can be um, kinetically useful in case of conflict i would just say that that you know one thing that that can that is of great concern to me personally is the way that china is is launching a kind of entropic warfare where they try to create chaos and fragmentation and disintegration within countries in this case in the pacific islands in order to give justification for an authoritarian like Sogavari to come to power and then he gets isolated from the west and then uh, becomes more reliant on china and then china can bring in its security relationship with that individual as a justification for keeping him in power but it has obviously these other ancillary benefits for for Beijing. So this fragmentation, this deliberate creation of fragmentation and division within the Pacific Island countries by Beijing in order to weaken those countries and make it easier for their political warfare to be effective is something that uh, is, is deeply concerning um, and very difficult to come back from once you have a population that's, that's you know, fragmented, has drugs flowing through it, has prostitution, that sort of thing. Well, just in closing, Cleo Pascal, doesn't Sagavari already have a Chinese personal security detail? Uh, so he has uh, definitely on-site Chinese police trainers. Whether there's personal bodyguard or not, I'm not sure. He also has people from PNG because he has a background in Papua New Guinea, has a personal background in Papua New Guinea, who are essentially tribally related to him that are also uh, protecting him, which does not make people in the Solomons happy either. It is not a good situation. Well, Cleo Pascal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. A pleasure. Thank you for taking on the topic. I really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India, and many others. And she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into an investment made by the CIA into a Dallas-based biotechnology company, Colossal Biosciences, whose founders have a mission to use advanced genetic sequencing for de-extinction that would bring back the woolly mammoth and the Tasmanian tiger. Sometimes. 
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Bogoslaw, who's an investigative reporter at The Intercept, covering American politics and corporate greed. He has written for The New Republic, The Nation, Sludge and The American Prospect. And his latest article at The Intercept is, The CIA Just Invested in Woolly Mammoth Resurrection Technology. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Bogoslaw. Hi, Ian. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And is this a case of life imitating art in the sense that there have been this whole series of these uh, Jurassic Park movies, but now, and I think they, if I seem to recall, the earlier ones involved some private billionaire on a, on a kind of scientific adventure to resurrect dinosaurs. This is uh, turning into a, a reality, is it not? And of all people, the CIA are investing in this technology. Yeah, I, I think the Jurassic Park metaphor is definitely apt, uh, especially if you look at one of the founders of Colossal, which is this, um, you know, de-extinction uh, biotech startup, George Church, one of the two co-founders. And if you look at his picture and his vision, there's definitely uh, some similarities with Jurassic Park. I would say that the the prospects for the completion of Mr. Church's vision are slightly dimmer than, than those in the movie. There have been a lot of skeptics of this technology uh, meeting its goals, both to resurrect the woolly mammoth and also the Tasmanian tiger. It seems more likely that this is sort of a catalyst for refining and developing new gene editing technologies, uh, making advances with CRISPR, which is kind of the uh, next-gen revolutionary gene editing technology that allows hyper-precision to um, cut genetic material out, uh, insert new genetic material. And the, the investment uh, by the CIA is, is particularly striking given the fact that it's a high-profile company. It's got celebrity backers like uh, Paris Hilton, Peter Thiel invested uh, $100,000 before the, the company was founded, but into the initial research that the company Colossal is now using. And so it's it's a weird blending of a pretty serious government agency with a flashy tech startup that, that a lot of people are, are questioning uh, the science behind. So we're talking about the Dallas-based biotechnology company Colossal Biosciences, and the CIA's uh, company called InQtel, which apparently uh, published on December, September the 22nd that they are uh, strategically less about mammoths and more about the capability. And the capability is about uh, gene splicing, right? Or this new CRISPR technique of uh, the use of genetic scissors. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, CRISP, uh, CRISPR technology has has really broad application for uh, all kinds of industries, both health sciences and, you know, agriculture and even, you know, some of these biotech companies getting into kind of industrial manufacturing, editing bacterial DNA to try to produce biofuels and new building materials. But one of the questions raised by this is what is you know, the CIA trying to get out of this. Now, specifically, the investment vehicle is InQtel, which is a sort of investment offshoot of the CIA, which is used to incubate new technologies. And historically, these investments have been targeted towards surveillance technologies, uh, weapon systems technologies. But over the course of the past 20 years, there's been a significant shift towards biotech. And, you know, the CIA has come under fire in the past for both continuing experiments and testing that walks the line of legality under a 1972 treaty banning bioweapons, and also from the application of biotechnologies like DNA sequencing used for activities that are morally and ethically dubious. For example, in 2011, the CIA oversaw a fake vaccination campaign in Pakistan as, as they were approaching the climax um, of capturing Osama bin Laden and were basically administering fake hep B vaccines and attempting to collect wi you know, widespread genetic material from family members of bin Laden. Three years later in 2014, Obama signaled that, that he would shut that down and that they wouldn't be continuing to use this technology. But 
you know, they're, they're shooting such a, a, a wide shot um, on so many different technologies, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. And the question is, things like CRISPR have all kinds of beneficial applications, like I mentioned, health sciences, but given the history of the CIA's involvement in, in places like Pakistan uh, and all over the globe, it raises some red flags. So back to the Dallas-based biotechnology company, Colossal Biosciences, and their founders, George Church and Ben Lamb, they say they want to see the woolly mammoth thunder across the tundra once again. Uh, and you also mentioned that they're trying to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger. The Tasmanian tiger, which is a marsupial, not really the size of a tiger, like a large dog, they actually existed, the last of the species, into the 1920s. So that's a somewhat different from the woolly mammoth, which has been extinct for <laughs> millennia, right? Yeah. And this ties into piece of their product pitch, which is this idea that, you know, resurrecting these long extinct animals, you know, the Tasmanian tiger from slightly less distant past, are towards the end of combating other species extinctions, you know, this, this notion of rewilding and reintroducing lost species into an ecosystem with the hopes of restoring it to its, you know, natural state. I, I think the issue with that that some critics have has raised is a the science is pretty pretty shoddy on restoring woolly mammoths to the tundra. That that's a difficult experiment to run, and b you're investing all this money and technology into a moonshot project that is very flashy is has proven extremely effective at attracting tens of millions of dollars of celebrity investment, but perhaps at the cost of investing in climate technologies and climate solutions that we know uh, are more effective, whether that's you know, refining sustainable energy sources, carbon capture technology, any number of you know, other testable scientific products uh, that the science is, is, is harder on. Well, there, there's evidence, though, isn't there, that a couple of these tech billionaires, like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel, who invested in this uh, woolly mammoth project, they're not that much interested in what's happening on this planet. They want to go to Mars and escape this planet or go to a bunker in New Zealand and live out the millennium on uh, cans of baked beans. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I think in the case of Peter Thiel, uh, if you look at his investment portfolio, you know, he, over the years he has set aside a lot of money towards pretty out there projects, uh, whether that was, you know, the idea of seasteading, creating kind of floating anarcho-libertarian uh, island communities, or whether it was, you know, pretty wild, vampiric uh, youth restoration technology using spinal fluid. I mean, in one sense, Teal's seed investment, and again, this, this was investment in church one of the co-founders of Colossal. He's not currently a stakeholder in Colossal. But if you look at his history of investments in these types of projects, I would say that it, it might actually point to the fact that, that this is a wildly ludicrous proposition and not that this is an excellent consumer investment choice like some of his more mainstream PayPal you know, related products. But this fellow Church is a Harvard geneticist and who's made these uh, who made a genome based dating app <laughs> he was funded by none other than Jeffrey Epstein right that's correct yeah and and in fact took that money after uh the first series of allegations uh were made public and i think you know if, if you read the interviews of of church and the way that he talks about this technology i mean it's it's striking that he's been able to advance uh to the levels which he has you know um, you know, working with the science-based, uh, excuse me, the Boston-based big labs, uh, working at the Broad Institute. Um, you know, he's he's basically gone on the record saying he is deeply in favor of of experimenting with technologies that would require or necessitate, you know, experimentation on on implanting gene-altered human embryos. Uh, you know. It, into some sort of incubation chamber, whether that's a human or artificial one, uh, I'm not sure. But, you know, he was reminded in a 
Der Spiegel interview that I cited in my piece uh, that, you know, experimenting on on embryos that are going to become people is banned under international law. And he shot back. Those laws can change. So, again, if, if you look at some of the people who are involved with this startup, it kind of calls into question uh, some of the legitimacy of the science. But it, it also kind of has this other tier going back to Incutel, the, the CIA investment firm, which is, you know, Incutel itself has come under fire in the past for the fact that its board members uh, are allowed to have relationships uh, or sit on the boards of the companies that it invests in. So, you know, there's there's a question of, is this technology useful for the U.S. government? Is this technology a good investment of taxpayer dollars? Or is this sort of one more pump and dump scheme that, you know, has a really nice website and talks about uh, an exciting topic, but which ultimately is, you know, a way to pad um, uh, what what is basically a, a venture capital firm's portfolio. But isn't there a problem here that technological breakthroughs or research is ahead of ethical standards? I mean, the f scary thing about the kind of work that we're talking about, this gene splicing and this new technique to do it more efficiently, it's not impossible to imagine at the end of the day couples wanting children could literally have a catalog and you know I want a child that has Michael Jordan's athleticism and Marilyn Monroe's looks and uh, Albert Einstein's brain I mean isn't that a possibility that's certainly a possibility but I think there's a simpler concern with with some of this technology which is you have a private sector which is making rapid advancements in the United States and you have a, a public sector which has been has seen its its regulatory capabilities gutted and significantly reduced and so while people might gesture towards the idea of you know human experimentation i think the bigger immediate challenge is the potential for these technologies to advance and develop so quickly that whether it's you know crispr or whether it's other technologies that apply to, you know, gain of, of function research, which, you know, is used to both positively to, to anticipate and prevent, uh, you know, future pandemics, but also, you know, oftentimes results or always results in, in making viruses spread faster, and more, more virulent. You know, you, you're seeing this technology rapidly advance and, and a government that's less and less well-funded is, is attacked for its size and bloat, even as it, it sees its ability to regulate all sorts of industries decrease. Um, and so I think, I, I think the more immediate danger is with these tech technologies advancing in the commercial space and there not being a good oversight mechanism to make sure that they're handled and used safely. So this company, Colossal Biosciences, it, as your article points out, it's manifesto, if you will. I'll just read uh, this altruistic and somewhat vague manifesto. Their motives are, quote, to advance the, econo the economies of biology and healing through genetics, to make humanity more human, and to reawaken the lost wilds of Earth so we and our planet can breathe easier. So what's... Uh, I mean, where's the <laughs> where's the beef, as I recall, one politician once said. That's a great question. I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm the type of literary expert to uh, explicate that somewhat confusing passage. But I think the thing that critics of Glossal have gestured to, towards is the fact that, you know, this is cutting edge technology, CRISPR, and there are lots of advances to be made with CRISPR still. And so really, it seems like people who, who are skeptics of Colossal have said, this is really kind of flashy show to funnel money into Church's pet project of, you know, continuing CRISPR research, conti continuing uh, advanced genetic research, and that this is all kind of a, you know, dog and pony show to try to fundraise. And obviously, they've been very successful. Well, stay tuned and we'll stay in touch, uh, Daniel, okay? All right. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Bogoslaw, who is an investigative reporter at The Intercept, covering American politics and corporate greed. He has written for The New Republic, The Nation, Sludge, and The American Prospect. And his latest article at The Intercept is The CIA Just Invested in Woolly Mammoth Resurrection Technology. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305